truth, perspective, and growth. This is the Michael Carroll Discipleship Podcast. Everyone was expecting, everyone was looking, everyone was waiting, hoping and believing that the God of Israel himself was coming to set up his throne on the earth and reign and rule forever. This is the setting, this is the mindset of the first century Jew. Well, welcome to the Discipleship Podcast. I hope you're having a great day. However you're tuning in, whether it's the radio, in your car, whether you are at the gym, getting your sets in, getting ready for the summer, whether you're at home with your kids, wherever you are at, thank you so much for tuning in. I love that we have a community growing of people who love God's word, who want to grow deeper in a relationship with God, and ultimately, they want to fulfill their purpose in life, what God has called them to do. I have been getting so much support from you guys as far as emails and encouragements, and thank you so much for sending all of that in. Uh, I have a passion to help you, and we're learning and growing together, so I'm glad that this community um, is growing, and and I really want to find ways to connect you guys together and get more involved in interacting with you. One of those ways is you can email me at podcast at michaelcarroll.tv. You can email me questions you have. You can email me comments or responses. Also, at the end of every single episode, you can send in a voice message. If you go into the details of the podcast, there will be a link where you can click You can send me a voice message. It's that easy. Right off your phone, give me a response to the episode, a question that you have, a thought or comment. I really want to engage you more and and, and feel like uh, this is a community. So you have a voice here. If you want to send in a response, if you want to send in a comment, please do. I would love to respond to any questions that you have as well. Well, uh, we're starting a new series today called Jesus, and the question is, who is Jesus? I want to kill something right from the very beginning because I know that there's a lot of uh, people who are mature Christians who listen to my uh, show I want to help you understand something. This is not a surface level, Jesus died on the cross, rose again, you're forgiven of your sins. Teaching, we're going into the first century perspective of Israel. What was it like to listen to Jesus' teaching from that perspective? We have to understand that we do not read the Bible from a perspective of a modern progressive uh, Western um, personality or worldview. It's a completely different world that Jesus uh, lived in when he was here on the earth. Understanding that culture, understanding that perspective helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he really was setting out to accomplish in his life. Now, there's one thing I can guarantee is that we've all heard the name Jesus. Now, if you're somehow tuning in you ha- and you haven't heard, man, you are listening to the right show. Stay tuned in. But for most of us, whether we're believers or not believers, whether we're an atheist or kind of somewhere in between and we're still figuring life out, but if we live in this modern Western world, it's highly unlikely that we have never heard of the name Jesus. Now, of course, 
Many of us listening to the show have at least visited a gathering where a preacher or teacher was talking about this man and teaching about what he had accomplished for the world. Um, but some of us are maybe Christians who've been in the church for a long time, and you might be thinking to yourself, why in the world would I need a series to tell me who Jesus is? I know who he is. He died on the cross. He rose again. I've been living with him for a while. I want to encourage you again, like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of misunderstandings about this person, Jesus. But when we see him from the correct and more accurate first century perspective, Everything changes with how we interact with him in our personal relationship and even with how we look at his mission in our lives. But no matter who you are, you cannot deny that this question is at the very least somewhat relevant to your life. It's a worthy topic to explore for some, and it's the absolute most important question ever to ponder in life for others. But who is Jesus? Who did Jesus think and believe he was? Why does it even matter to people who don't even believe that Jesus is real? Why did they get so frustrated and upset about who he claimed to be? If Jesus wasn't really who he claimed he was, then why have people dedicated their entire careers to prove this wrong? Why is this so important? Why is he such a threat? Why have people like Richard Dawkins and other atheist authors Why have they devoted their entire lives to proving to the entire world that Jesus is a fraud? Doesn't it seem odd to you that people care that much about someone who they don't believe to be real? There must have been a point in their lives where they felt that this presence was real or was at the very least a threat to them. You don't see people lining up to write books to convince the world that Santa Claus and the boogeyman is not real. They just simply believe He's not real. And if for some reason you are a 30-year-old adult with a full-time job and you still believe that Santa Claus is real and the boogeyman's real, you know what, man? That is fine. Good for you, okay? You're not going to see a mass crowd of people in uproar about it. They will leave you alone to your own beliefs. But why isn't that the case with Jesus? Now, there's no doubt that this topic of who Jesus was and why he's so important of a figure, uh, that that this was a a very, very uh, important thing, not only for the first century, but this has been a world, this has been a lifelong for centuries topic of the person Jesus. In fact, the past couple centuries, it's been even more important of a topic with the development of science and, and all of these discoveries, archaeological discoveries, and all of these different things that we're learning about this planet. It all comes down and always boils back down to, is Jesus really who he says he was? There's no doubt that this topic of who Jesus was is one of the most highly regarded, thoroughly studied, and utterly scandalized topic in the world. Everyone at one point or another has to make a decision when they hear about this man named Jesus. And from a Christian perspective, this decision isn't made without it affecting one's own entire existence. Some people take the stance that Jesus was a man sent from heaven who has come to tell people of another world far, far away that they can be a part of. And if they just follow him, they can escape this world and be freed from the sin and death that surrounds them. Other people claim that he was a great teacher who showed people how to be better humans and exist more peacefully, but ultimately he doesn't change much about their eternal future. Of course, there are countless other opinions about this man named Jesus, but I I just pointed out probably the more popular ones. But 
What if I was to tell you that Jesus was more than a man sent from heaven to lead us out of this world? What if I was to tell you that he was more than just a great teacher, although I would agree he was probably the greatest communicator of all time? What if I was to tell you that Jesus was coming not to lead us into a new world far, far away, but what if I was to tell you he was the God of all creation himself? That he came with an announcement that wasn't pointing us to a new foreign and weird place that many people try to imagine as being heaven, but that he came to usher in a new age, an age where heaven and earth would again be united. And rather than waiting for a new world that seems light years away, what if I was to tell you that this planet that we are on at this very moment is where you were meant to live and dwell with God in his presence? Well, if I have your attention and maybe you're wondering where I'm going with all of this, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but in the next few episodes, I want to explore this topic and talk about this man named Jesus. Who was he? Why did he come? What did he accomplish? And how does that affect us today in our lives? Before we could talk about why Jesus came, what he did, and how that affects us, we first need to understand who Jesus was. So I want to invite you into the world of the first century. Allow your mind to shift from your current culture and modern perspective. There's no iPhones. There's no Ubers. There's no Publix. The world that we live in today is a much different world than the first century. You have to shift your perspective when reading the Bible because you will never understand Jesus until you understand the culture he lived in during the first century. You cannot read the Bible through the lens of a modern Western progressive worldview or perspective. You cannot interpret scripture, whether it's the New Testament or the Old, from your current perspective. People in the first century didn't think the way we think. They didn't live the way we live. What was normal then would it have been as normal for us now and vice versa. So we have to go back in time to the first century. And let's try to understand what was going on in the world. So let's head over to Jerusalem. It's about the first century. At around 30 years before this man named Jesus was ever born, a major empire, a big, huge power and influencing empire had gradually been growing into force. They had sheer military power and control and, and, and big influence in the world. This empire is known as the Roman Empire. For about the past two to three hundred years, this empire was a major force, but they were just a republic at this moment. There was a system set in place that consisted of checks and balances to make sure that one person wouldn't control everything and that those who were in control would not remain in control for long. This system was not set in place for no reason. Rome had had its own fair share of tyrants and bad leadership, and at this point of their history, they were actually very proud to claim that they had rid themselves of such men in leadership disasters. But all of this changed with one man, and that man had the name of Julius Caesar. This man, Julius Caesar, had brought his own military back to Rome itself, and he had set up shop. He had so much influence that the people even began to think that he was a divine hero, a god of some sort. Even more so, prior to this point, the name Caesar was actually just a family name. But from that time on, Julius Caesar became a royal title. This was no mere man. He had the ability to grip an empire and take full control. 
The traditional Roman leaders who had prided themselves in ridding themselves of tyrants were furious with Julius Caesar's rise to power and they assassinated him. Caesar's adopted son Octavian, after a bloody civil war and and power struggle, eventually took over the empire and Caesar's adopted son Octavian took on the title of Augustus Caesar. Now it's important that you understand this fact here. Because Julius Caesar had been regarded as a god by the Romans, Augustus Caesar now took on the title of the Son of God. Does that sound familiar? If you were to ask anyone around that area who the Son of God was, the answer wouldn't have been Jesus. The politically correct answer would have been Octavian. Now, Augustus Caesar went on to rule from 31 BC to 14 AD. His empire was huge. And they had aggressive and creative propaganda campaigns that would uh, send the message out to the world that Rome had ushered in a new golden age. It had become a national celebration and the Romans believed that the reign of these divine rulers were ushering in this new age of peace, of prosperity and provision for the people of the world. Augustus Caesar's successor was his own son Tiberius, and he took on the same title and was viewed in the very same way his father was. Now pull yourself into the setting as a first century Jew, and it's not hard to begin to see the tension here. This is the case for many reasons. The Jews for hundreds of years had been exiles in their own land. 400 years prior to this man named Jesus coming into the picture, an Israelite named Nehemiah was in exile. He had been forced out of his own land and into the exile of another nation. The temple was destroyed. Their identity as God's people had been close to being damaged forever. Nehemiah had uh, helped reconstruct the temple, but in uh, the attempt to reconstruct the temple, there was still a lot of sin and rebellion going on with the chief priests. And there was this moment right before the Old Testament ends that they had been delivered from this exile from different lands, but yet they realized there was a deeper exile. They weren't free. There was still a power that was controlling and ruling within Israel itself. Now, the temple got destroyed again after being after Israel got taken over by nations once again, and their identity as God's people had almost been damaged forever. Now, it's important to understand that the exile that Israel was under is the setting in the Bible where we meet characters like Daniel, who remained faithful to God's values, Ezekiel, who would write prophetic declarations of God's future kingdom being established in encouraging the children of God to be faithful during oppression and and the exile that they were in, even though it may seem that they had lost all hope. But this exile was a result of Israel's downfall as a nation. It wasn't a result of uh, another nation just being bad. Even though they had repeated warnings from God through his prophets to turn back to God and stop rebelling from within their hearts, Israel just did not listen. The children of Israel had adopted the worship of foreign gods. They had intermarried with the surrounding pagan nations and they would continue, continually reject their end of the covenant they were in with God. Prior to going into the promised land, when Moses was at the end of his life in ministry, this is just at the, uh, this is just in the beginning of the Old Testament where we learn about the people of Israel. The Lord had appeared to Moses and he gave him a very clear warning about all of this. In Deuteronomy 31, verse uh, 15 and 16, the Bible says that the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. 
And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors and this people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. This is amazing because God had just made a covenant with with Israel. He had just promised them blessings and just told them, uh, showed them wisdom of how to live as his covenant people, how to stay in his blessings. And right before uh, Moses's life ends, right before Israel enters into the promised land, God tells him that they are going to forsake him, that they will go into exile, that they will break his commands. But there was also a promise of restoration from this exile. And we have to understand something here. When we read the Old Testament, we have to understand that the Jews of this time would have known these scriptures. It's not like modern church or Christianity where someone can say, yeah, they love Jesus. They go to church. They got a relationship with God, but they don't know a thing about the Bible. That wasn't the culture of this time. Anyone who cared about their identity as a child of God, anyone who cared about their lineage and ancestry and where they came from would have known a whole lot about the future promises and prophecies about their nation. So in this setting with the Roman Empire expanding, the Jews would have known this following verse as well. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 4. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Jews would have known this and would have been looking for this type of restoration, this type of victory and deliverance from God. Ezekiel put it this way in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. This is the type of hope that the Israelites would have had during this time when the Roman Empire was expanding its control of their land. So place yourself in the mind of a first century Jew. All throughout the history of Israel, they believed that their future as a people were going somewhere. They had kings who made horrible mistakes. They had had leaders who had made horrible mistakes. And they ended up in the oppression and exile of their surrounding enemy nations. But they had a hope. They had a future. They had promises from God that he would one day take them from their enemies and restore them and become their king. They were looking forward to the future. Filled throughout the entire Bible are declarations, promises, and prophecies of Israel's future. They were looking forward to a future hope, a greater day, a new age, a time when God would become their king. After all, anyone who understands the Old Testament will understand that Israel believed that their God was the only God. There was no other God who was real or who had control of the world. Now, sure, the other nations around them had false idols and pagan gods that they worship, but Israel understood that they were all fake, that they were not real, that the God of Abraham who visited them... The God of all creation who made a covenant with them was the real God. He was the true God. It was the God who put on a display of great power of supernatural control when he freed them from Egyptian slavery under the leadership of Moses. In fact, even though it was 1,500 years before the life of Jesus, uh, the Exodus was still a national celebration. 
This was the time when God heard their cry. He responded to it. He put on his own display of power for the world to see. Indeed, Israel was his own people and they knew God was passionately defending them in their time of trouble and need. This came to a climax on the night of the Passover when the death angel brought judgment upon Egypt and passed over every Israelite house that had the blood of a sacrificed spotless lamb painted on the doorposts. This blood of the lamb would later be seen as a foreshadow into the future of the blood of the sinless Jesus who would cover the hearts and minds of all of his followers and free them from the bondage of slavery and power of sin and death. But their history as a nation went even further back than the Exodus and went all the way back to creation when everything went wrong in Genesis 1 through 3. Mankind failed in their occupation. God had made a plan and this plan was launched with the covenant he made with Abraham. This covenant promised that through Abraham, a great nation would come about. And through this nation, God was going to rescue the entire world from the power of sin and death. Now follow me. Follow me. I'm taking you somewhere. I'm taking you into the mind of a first century Jew. They were under the oppression of the Roman Empire who worshipped false gods. This empire even gave divine status to their own human rulers. And it had been hundreds and hundreds of years since Israel had been free. They're spiritually oppressed at this point. But there was a hope that Israel had as a nation that they were looking forward to. Israel was going from being oppressed by different nations as they were as they were overtaken by different leaders that would rise up. It would seem that this was the time for God to show up and deliver them. If there was ever a time for this to happen, it would be now. God had promised them this. It was a part of their plan. It was a part of their story. God would not abandon them. He would not leave them to remain under oppression. He would show up to put these nations in their place. He would show up and be their king. The Israelites believed, the Israel's, uh, Israelites, I'm sorry, believed deep within their soul that God was not only real, but that he was powerful. They believed that their God was no one to mess with. We learn a little bit in Psalm 18, verse 7, how uh, the psalmist describes God about the earth trembling and quaking and the foundations of the mountains shaking before him. And they trembled because God was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. God parted the heavens came down dark clouds were under his feet he mounted the cherubim and flew he made darkness his covering out of the brightness of his presence clouds advanced the lord thundered from heaven the voice of the most high resounded i mean listen to this imagery here god was not a little sissy god to the israelites god was huge he was powerful this does not sound like a god who would have a problem dealing with an annoyingly arrogant roman empire Oh, he could settle it out with a couple flicks of his fingers. And there wasn't a Jew who was alive during that time who doubted that. They knew God was able. They knew that he was coming. They were looking forward to that future hope. He would return. And all of the prophets in the Old Testament had been pointing towards this future return. They were telling the people of God to look forward. Your king is coming. Isaiah 52 verse 8 through 10 wrote, Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. 
burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. That's you people in exile. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. I love that verse where Isaiah says the Lord will lay bare his holy arm. What he's saying is God is rolling up his sleeves and he's about ready to take care of Israel's enemies, put them in place, come down and be their king and rule with perfect love and justice. The people of God no doubt were looking for the return of their king. But the interesting thing is that none of them knew what to expect or what this would look like. How was God going to be their king on earth? God had made this promise to a king named David that through his family line, there would be a king who would rule the earth forever. But how does that work out? The promise David uh, to David looked like this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Samuel wrote, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Israel knew God was coming back to be king. They knew this king was coming through the line of David. Yet what does that mean? How can a man from David's family become king, but yet God also be king as well? How is God going to work all of this out? This was a great mystery to Israel. But yet in it, uh, they were no way deterred from believing or being confident in this hope. God himself was going to be king. He was the only one who would be able to reign with perfect justice and righteousness. The only question was when. Many movements were trying to make this happen and somehow speed up the process. One of the main reasons for the Pharisees focusing on the ritual law and tradition the way they did is because they believed if they held on to their traditions and ritual laws as strictly as they could, that they would somehow speed up the process and God would come back to rescue them for their impression from the Roman Empire. Everyone was expecting, everyone was looking, everyone was waiting, hoping and believing that the God of Israel himself was coming to set up his throne on the earth and reign and rule forever. This is the setting, this is the mindset of the first century Jew. This was the mindset of those who were looking forward to the future, expecting and believing in the hope that was promised to them from the long line of prophets and men of God who had been given dreams, visions, and revelations of this future day. There was imagery all throughout the scripture that described this moment when God would become king and that in the first century Jew knew very well, they prayed, they meditated on these scriptures, believing that God would restore them once again as a nation. And this was the setting that Jesus himself walked into. I want you to open your mind to something. Many Christians, when they think of Jesus, think of him as this super spiritual guy who gathered people into circles and he taught them profound things. But the expectation and hope of God coming to be king was more than a spiritual thing. It was more than a thoughtful thing. It was very much a political and cultural thing. It involved families and peoples and leadership and all of that. Who was in charge? Who was telling people what to do? This should cause us to sit back and wonder to ourselves, what did life feel like living as a nation identified by God, but under the oppression of the Roman Empire and watching your leadership set up pagan idols and worship false gods? 
So when Jesus came into the picture making claims that he was the Messiah and he was the king of Israel, he was the one that all of these prophecies had been pointing to and had been predicted. These were major claims that he was making. But the expectations of what he would do after making these claims went beyond just a spiritual identity. They weren't looking for him just to come and teach them some things about how to be good people. They were looking for him to come and establish his kingdom, to take care of their enemies, to free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Israel was waiting for a real king to take over and put all of their enemies into check. This would have been what they were hoping and believing Jesus would do if indeed he was who he claimed he was. Well, Jesus did come through the line of David. His lineage matched up. The time and setting that Jesus entered into the picture, it made sense and matched up. But what Jesus taught, how he went about things, and ultimately how he accomplished his mission was not at all what Israel was expecting or looking for. Israel was looking for a king to come and rescue them from their exile. Israel was looking for a king to come put their enemies in check and settle everything out. Israel was looking for a king to come overthrow the pagan nations that were oppressing them and reign and rule them with perfect justice. But Jesus didn't come to confront Israel's enemies the way they were hoping. There is a certain power a certain dark force working behind the scenes of all the nations of the world. And this force wasn't just moving behind the pagan nations. It was influencing Israel herself. There was a darkness that has plagued the earth and was living in the hearts and minds of men. There was a dark force that had to be dealt with. And it seems that Jesus was actually more focused on confronting this force and overcoming it rather than dealing with the Roman Empire. But what does that look like? How is he going to accomplish this? How is he going to lead Israel into this new exodus and rescue them from their true slavery? How is he going to fulfill the promise of using Israel to be a light to the world? Israel, who was so stained with sin and rebellion within their own hearts, how are they going to be the vessel through which God saves and rescues the whole world? They needed rescuing themselves. This is the tension that we will have to unpack as we seek to understand who Jesus really was and what he really accomplished by establishing his kingdom at the cross, not by overthrowing an empire, but by death. As we look forward to the next episode, we're going to discover why Jesus came when he did and what he really set out to accomplish in his ministry here on earth. But I want to leave you with this thought. Understanding the mindset of the first century Jew, you'd have to understand that every year they would relive the Exodus. They would celebrate the Passover meal. The elders of the town would tell the stories to the younger generation of Moses confronting the dark forces behind Pharaoh and Moses being empowered and commissioned by God would ultimately lead them into freedom from slavery and bondage and walk them into the promised land that was rightfully theirs. Well, here they are. They're in that land, the land that was promised to them, but had been taken over. It was under control of foreign pagan nations. 
But Israel continued to celebrate this exodus. They continued to celebrate the Passover. And they continued to look forward to a time when God would accomplish this new exodus. When he would once again confront the powers of darkness behind the nations of the world. But it wasn't Pharaoh this time. It wasn't Egypt this time. Now it was Caesar in the Roman Empire. And much to what would be their surprise, it would also actually be their religious leadership as well. The powers of darkness that control the entire world influenced Israel themselves, and they would be confronted by this Messiah that was to come. And it wasn't going to happen the way they expected. How was the story going to unfold? What does this man named Jesus, who was going about healing people, teaching them about the kingdom of God, what does he plan to do? What does that mean for our own life as Christians today? How do we know that God is really king right now, even though it doesn't look like it in the world? You'll just have to wait for the, the next episode. But in the meantime, think about your own life. Think about your own freedom. Have you been rescued from darkness? Have you been released from the chains of bondage of sin and death? Has Jesus taken his place on the throne of your heart as king? Is he ruling your life with perfect love and justice? When we better understand who Jesus really is, then we are better equipped to respond to his leadership in our own lives. How, does he, how is he going to accomplish this? How is he going to set out and confront the powers of darkness that have ruined his perfect creation? A temporary overthrow of a nation wouldn't be enough. Jesus needed to take on sin and death once and for all and disarm it of its power in order to start a new age where his creation was no longer influenced or affected by the power of sin. And that's where you are today. If you have given your life to Jesus, you've been born again. You are a part of this new age. So follow us as we journey through the first century and watch the savior of the world from the perspective of a first century Jew. We watch him take on the forces of darkness and destroy sin and death once and for all. It's an amazing story of a God who so loved the world that he gave his all to give us a new life. We'll unpack all of this and more in the following episodes. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Michael Carroll Discipleship Podcast. Make sure to share this episode with your friends and also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at mcarrollnow. Have a great day. Until next time.